Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Hi, I hope you're healthy and staying safe. My friends at Prosec Partners reached out with the idea of having a mini-series about some of the issues facing allocators in this novel environment. How are they thinking about risk and opportunities? How are they communicating with managers? And how will they conduct due diligence and push forward? I'm grateful to the very busy professionals who spared time to share their thoughts, and a special thanks to Prosec Partners for sponsoring the series. For more than 20 years, Prosec has been building and protecting brands on behalf of leading financial institutions. To learn more, have a listen to my conversation with Jen Prosec that follows on the feed. I'll be putting out these conversations in addition to the regular programming on Mondays. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Mark Baumgartner, the Chief Investment Officer of the Institute for Advanced Study, where he oversees a billion-dollar portfolio. I reached out to Mark in this rapidly changing environment to get his take on how he's navigating these rough seas. He was kind to spare a few moments to share his thoughts. Our conversation covers Mark's framework for approaching this crisis, communicating with his team, orienting to the environment, communicating with managers, filtering and prioritizing the opportunity set, and taking action. Please enjoy my conversation with Mark Baumgartner. Well, Mark, thanks for taking the time to do this. Yeah, my pleasure. Appreciate what you're doing. I think it's the time to all join together, help each other out. And so this is a uh, nice way to do that. I thought it would be interesting to really dive in. This is a pretty unique time for everyone and have a chat about how you in your seat are evolving what you're doing. So why don't we just start with, I guess, as this first transpired and you can no longer go to the office, 
How are you and your team communicating with each other? Let me just start out by saying it is an extraordinary situation, and it's unlike anything that we've seen. But that said, there are a lot of analogs that can be useful in a time like this. And I would borrow a couple acronyms from uh, military parlance. VUCA, that's from the U.S. Army War College in Pennsylvania. It stands for Volatile, Uncertain, Complex, and Ambiguous Situation. It's just the kind of thing that we're faced with now. A way of approaching that is with an UDA loop. And that's an acronym for Observe, Orient, Decide, and Act. It's from the Air Force, Colonel John Boyd. He designed it as a framework for pilots who were uh, facing dogfights. And so you can use both of those as analogs for the kind of situation that we're faced in. And so it's hard. And what we have done, obviously, we're lucky enough to have in the past all had times that we worked outside the office whether during travel or maintaining a link between our New York office and the Princeton office. And so we had a lot of practice using video conferencing and remote access. So there was a little bit of a hiccup as we all got oriented, but we're all in different geographic locations. We're all generally safe and we're all generally productive. So what parts of your normal routine would you say you've had to amend because of the inability to get together face-to-face? Well, I think we're doing everything that we were doing, but what's been layered on top of all of that is a requirement to really understand the changes in the environment. That's where I go to the OODA loop. And so the first thing that we did was we observed, and I think we're lucky enough, and I'll put in a plug for uh, some of the folks that have been kind enough to keep us in the loop with an early warning types of systems like Mark Kritzman at Wyndham, Ed Peters at First Quadrant, Bill Shadwick at Omega Analytics. These are all folks who provide indicators that tell us when things are changing, changing rapidly. And then it was all about the observation, reading, 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 just the deluge of information that came in and triangulating to really understand what was going on and what was real data, what was not real data. As you're observing, and now I guess the second O is orienting, how are you assimilating this information into what specifically you're trying to understand about your own portfolio? I think the interesting thing about this is that it's so unusual that there is not president, and we're seeing things in the numbers that are confusing, baffling, shocking. And so very hard to interpret what's happening there, especially if you have not lived through a crisis like 2008 or lived through the dot-com boom or bust, lived through situations in the 90s, in the mid-90s. And uh, parallels were being drawn between now and even the crash in 87 in terms of rapidity. Different causes, but same types of effects. And so not to throw out another acronym, but I go back to a guy named Gary Klein, who wrote a book called Sources of Power in the late 90s. His RPD, Recognition Prime Decision Making, is where experience really counts. And that's what counts in the Orient stage. Now, you can throw up your hand and say, well, I don't have that experience, but others do. 
And so this is where after reading and reading and reading and thinking and reading some more and collecting the information, you go out and you find the people who you've hopefully trust and have great relationships with. So they're going to give you some time in a very busy time. Start with economists. So again, if I'm giving uh, thanks to people, Lakshman Akuthan of ECRI, David Levy of Levy Forecasting, the guys at GavCal, obviously Bridgewater is source number one for me and the way the economic machine works and the way we think about things. And those are all places where you can get that orientation. That is where you get the experience of others and they can help you interpret what you're seeing. And so that's been another primary draw on time and source of time. And what I, again, recommend folks do once they have a base. If you get started too soon on talking with others without thinking yourself, I think it's hard to utilize that information. So put the stake in the ground, spend the time to really get a sense of what's going on. And, and by the way, you can be useful to folks if you are also a source of information in an uncertain time. So once you've got that orientation, both the observation and orientation, how have you then communicated with your managers? Delicately. <laughs> a lot of our managers are in uh, the midst of a VUCA situation themselves and are dealing with things and have precious little time to communicate. And so we've been conscientious to try not to draw too much of their time, but to really understand, first off, is there anything that we need to be aware of that is outside the bounds of expectations? And so time like this, um, you've seen some seize ups in, in the markets, you've seen spreads blowing out, you've seen situations where a time series has a step change in what was happening in the past. And I think obviously there have been some casualties. We've heard of some funds that are gone. So Step one is be cognizant of the people who are making life and death decisions about their business. But two, just be aware, be a resource, be a provider of help in any way, right? We're all in this together and uh, we need to be leaning on each other. We're fortunate through some luck and, and some planning to come in with a reasonable liquidity position. And so we're ear to the ground to look for ways of putting that to work. Yeah. How much of the information you're getting from your managers is effectively proactive and you're reaching out to them and trying to understand and how much of it are you saying, you know, look, they need their time. Let's see what they're going to communicate to us. Yeah, I think it's 50-50. It's an equal balance of each. You know, some folks we've reached out to say, hey, we've seen things going on in your neck of the woods What's happening? Are you raising a fund? Are you looking opportunistically? Do you need capital? Others we've heard proactively coming back to say, okay, you know, this is what we're seeing and this is what we're planning to do. I don't think there's any right or wrong there. I will say that ways that you don't want to do this are to be tone deaf. I've seen some very absurd asks coming through email and that I'm almost sure could not have had a human touch. They must be automated because they're so tone deaf on the timing. Mark, what's an example of tone? I'm not even sure. I think something came through on uh, learning Excel skills. 
I think learning Excel skills is admirable. This is not the time to be advertising that. But uh, the other thing I would say is don't come in with an email that says, hey, I know you're busy. We're here if you need us. There's just no value there. And I think that's a distraction as well. And I think some people believe that passes for communication, but not in a time like this, not to be blunt. But there are two uh, ends of the spectrum, right? There's no communication. There's the valueless communication. There is over-communication where we're getting just blitzed by managers who are providing information. And while that is helpful and appreciated, it's also very quickly something that's relegated to the files, not the garbage file, but it will not be read. And so I think the most effective ways of reaching people are to say, there are a couple things. One, there's an opportunity. Two, this is why the opportunity is so compelling. And this is what we were thinking back in February before any of this happened. And this is what we're thinking now, both in terms of risk and reward. You've got to have both of those pieces. And so those are appreciated and those are highlighted. And those are things that we are putting on our list of potential things to address and uh, setting up to talk about with the committee. The other side of it that you haven't mentioned is getting informed about any problems that have come up. Yeah. So I think the answer there is as soon as possible, let people know what's coming, even difficult news. I think the worst is to find out that the outcome has been a bad outcome, but it's a really bad outcome that's surprising versus a progressively worse and worse outcome. And so if you've had trouble in the portfolio and, and some of our managers have, there's been some unusual activity, unusual results, report back, give a sense, and uh, just be as transparent as possible. Is there anything that stood out about either someone who's approached you or sent you an email that struck you as a good way to communicate with you? It's that high EQ, very empathetic tone. It is a highlight of what has changed. You know, this is what we thought. This is now what we think. This is what we recommend. I think those are the best types of communications. Concise, empathetic, and transparent. And so I know that's very general, but those are the types of things that we respect at a time like this. I mean, time is precious. And to the extent that someone can make efficient use of our time to tell us about something, we welcome it. And for me, again, I, I go back to my personal experience and the most effective use of my time is typically reading things. I am appreciative of those offering conversations with portfolio managers. I have availed myself of some of those conversations, but by and large, in a time like this, where things are rapidly changing and we're going to be required to communicate with our committees and asset owners, time is too precious to have a manager meeting. As you're doing this triage in this good situation where you have available capital to put to work, where do you start? Do you start with your existing managers? Yeah, absolutely. It's ear to the ground for the folks we know the best and trust the most. But we are absolutely open to hearing about opportunities elsewhere. I, mean, I think there's some 
very interesting things because opportunities that did not exist in February are now really interesting, really attractive potentials. And so the world has changed. Are there particular areas of the market that at this moment in time you're investigating more than others? Obviously, with spreads blowing out the way they have, opportunities in private credit, distressed, high yield are interesting. And there's enough stress that looks like it's been created in that market to make it attractive for liquidity providers. I wouldn't say that's widespread yet, but it seems like it's coming. There are opportunities, especially in travel and leisure sector. It's been very, very affected. And in airlines, I think there are some uh, interesting strategies that probably have double the expected return that they had back in February, possibly double the expected risk. But for long-term investors and for folks who want effective use of their capital and levered use of their capital, I think there are opportunities there. How have you thought about mapping out what those downside risks are in sectors or call it opportunity funds where it's not hard to understand what the risk is present today, maybe a lot harder to understand how long it lasts? Yeah, I think that's the exact question is not will we get back to where we were, but how long will it take? And what does it do long-term to the growth trajectory to have to spend the kind of money to rescue the many, many people who are affected by this in an unexpected way, in a way that is uh, something that should be, in my belief, socialized across the beneficiaries of our economy, which is my way of saying all of us. When markets are moving so quickly up and down, certainly in the equities and probably bouncing around in some of the credit markets as well, how do you think about doing your due diligence in a sufficiently timely way to take advantage of some of these opportunities? It's very hard and you are um, required to prioritize some of those things. And that's what's part of the additional uncertainty in this environment. When you're faced with that, there's this gut reaction to, to kind of throw out things that don't make sense to you, throw things out that you feel are useless and act. And I would suggest that that is a decision. Everything we do is a decision. So action or inaction are both decisions. Really, I'd say the rule of thumb was no matter what your project is, spend the first 10% of that project planning and thinking. So we don't know how long this project is going to be, but it probably requires us to just pause and say, you know, what is it that we're really seeing here? Is this a head fake? What do we really believe about what's coming? Have markets properly discounted the future or is there something else here? It's very funny. You've got data that doesn't make sense, right? You've got things that have had 10 standard deviation moves. And so you can either say to yourself, well, this is just junk. Or this is where, you know, Lakshman Akyathan came in from ECR to say, the data may be bunk from a magnitude perspective, but it doesn't have to be totally useless from a trend perspective. So think about using what you have and salvaging what you have and what you know. And this is where you should trust your gut. Again, you should 
be orienting. You should be using that recognition prime decision making. But don't depend solely on your gut. Make sure that you are making use of the analytics as uncertain as they are. As you get through this period of time, and as you said, there are certain things that you are diving into on research. From a process perspective, if we look back at this conversation, whatever it is, a month, six months out, what do you think is a successful process and what would constitute an unsuccessful process? It is all about the process. I think that's exactly right. I think an unsuccessful process would be one that doesn't acknowledge the speed at which the world has changed. And so if you are not acting right now, I think then that should be construed as unsuccessful. Now, acting, when I say acting, I mean establishing your position and your strategy and taking steps to acknowledge what has changed. I'm not saying making any decisions, but certainly taking this extremely seriously and coming up with a plan given what has happened here would be critical. And so that varies for different types of organizations. But I think to be speedily getting to a point where you can both assess what has happened and forecast your best belief at what is coming and make sure that you have a plan to deal with that in the short term, that would be successful to me. There's nothing in there that says standing still is the wrong action. Rebalancing might be the right action, but do it deliberately with an eye toward really as best you can quantifying the beliefs about the behavior of your portfolio in this new environment. So with your portfolio in particular, and we can attach that last conversation we had a while back after this, it has a particular flavor to it typically doesn't have a whole lot of market sensitivity and is quite different from a lot of other institutional portfolios. The opportunities that you're looking at and you mentioned are some form of go buy cheap assets. How do you think about integrating that type of investment in a portfolio that by and large has a lot less, call it beta, than some of your peers? The interesting thing about the portfolio is that it has had low beta in the past. It may not have low beta going forward. And again, this is not something that is designed to be low beta. This is designed to make the most effective use of the capital that we have to find returns. And so if the best opportunities to find returns are attached to things that have a high variance, Hide market beta, then we will put capital there. And my instinct right now is the world has changed. Cash has dropped 150 basis points. You have a complete 180 from the trend that we were on in 2018. Folks have said, well, you know, the Fed dropped 50 basis points and then had a surprise 100 point drop on a Sunday, and the market still sold off as if that was a failure. I don't know if that was a failure. <laughs> We may have saved the market at that point from going down even further or dropping even more precipitously. No one knows. We can't write that history, but it is what it is. And the market has now priced what the expectation is for the risk-free rate. And that's to be very, very low for the foreseeable future. And so institutions like ours that are depending on the endowment 
to support the operating budget are in a very difficult spot. If we could get to our spend rate without taking risk, we would certainly choose to do that. But we can't do that. And now it's up to us to figure out how we can actually give ourselves a chance as a long-term investor, as an institution with permanent capital to get to that needed return level. And so I think we need to be thinking very creatively here and possibly using overlays to take risk and manage risk and really focusing on ways of adding alpha to the portfolio that we otherwise wouldn't be able to do. I'm always curious in a situation like this where you had a certain risk structure and as you're saying, going forward, that you might end up changing that to some extent because of where the opportunities are, how difficult it can be to pivot when underlying those investments you've made are a set of relationships. And I wonder sort of as you're looking at these one-off opportunities that's created by this, what happens if the set of relationships you had in the past think a certain way about markets and that's why you've selected those managers, but you need to pivot because some of what you want to do going forward is a slightly different mindset or skill set. That is very, very difficult. That speaks to, again, a process and being prepared. And so using very creative managers and thinkers to help you prepare for something that hasn't happened but might happen is one way of doing that. Maintaining relationships and always keeping an open mind and listening to the opportunity set and considering the opportunity set as part of a process is very, very important as well. And that's something that we should all be doing as part of our pipeline. The mandate is not to choose a strategy and stick to it. The mandate is to achieve an objective given the opportunity set that we face. And so that has been an element of of our strategy always. And we've been fortunate. Yes, we have a portfolio that currently is heavily weighted to hedge funds and hedge strategies and private markets. That doesn't mean we haven't been considering public market types of investments and long biased investments and things that have not performed well, but might perform well in this environment. And I'd specifically point out that I think active management is going to have a a golden resurgence here in the coming years. All right, Mark, I want to ask you one more question. In this particular different iteration and work style, how are you taking care of yourself? It is all about balance. And so some of the benefits of working from home are uh, seeing a lot more of my sons, at least what they allow me to see. They're having a bonanza of uh, video games and time on their own, but I have been purposefully disengaging and trying to reconnect with family. Reading books, exchanging ideas with friends has been a luxury. Well, great. Mark, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Ted. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 